Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and Art de Rocher of The Athletic. The In Frank We Trust banner was still up at Stamford Bridge, but the legend had left the building. The latest Chelsea manager, Thomas Tuchel, began with a sterile, goalless draw against Wolves. He was one of three German coaches in last season's Champions League semi-finals. What does his appointment tell us beyond the fact he was in the right place at the right time. There's a lot of love around for the German system and their holistic method of coach development. Johnny, is that a fashion statement or something more substantial? No, I, th- I think this is a substantial development, let's say, in, in terms of the Premier League turning to, to German knowledge. I mean, over the last 15 years, I guess, you'd say that German coaching has probably replaced Spanish in terms of primacy in, in, in Europe. It comes from a very good German education system and from, it's famously been called that reboot of their football in the mid-noughties where really a whole, uh, you know, a very holistic approach, is used the right word, Mike, that the, the whole FA coaching fraternity, playing fraternity got together and, and, and sort of produced a way forward and I think what, what what you see from German coaches is a kind of midpoint a blend between the, maybe the possession based ideas of the Spanish and the physical traditions that, that, that we know in the English game and infl- you know of influence has been Pep Guardiola's time at Bayern Munich which brought another set of ideas to what was already there you know, the two great coaches of our era are Guardiola and Klopp, and they worked together in the Bundesliga at the same time. And then what you see is Tuchel, Nagelsmann, and a generation below them who've who've taken from both philosophies, which aren't too far apart, actually, and <clears throat> and are moulding them together into, into something that's very convincing, I think. I mean, you've got possession, you've got pressing, you've got uh, positional play, and something that's quite suited to the English game as well with that emphasis on on pressing and physical activity, which in its own way was inspired by the English teams of the 1980s, you know, Klopp and, and so on would, would, would pay the debt to that. So things do go in cycles in football, but I don't think this is fashion. I think German this German era will be looked back upon as 
as a serious chapter in, in, in football development. And the ideas of, of Guardiola in particular and probably Klopp will, will live on for a long time. Yeah, well, we'll dig around on the, the wider lessons of that German system, you know, perhaps a little bit later. Let's first things first, Art. First impressions of, of Chelsea under Tuchel. I thought that performance was, was static, almost selfish, in as much as that you saw players being pretty risk-averse. They didn't want to risk being shown up in front of the new boy right straight away. So they just basically you know, took the easier option. Almost it was paralysis by inconclusive passing. What did you make of it? Yeah, I think at times it's quite tame with how they played. The, the number of passes they racked up was unbelievable not to create a real goal-scoring chance. Of course, there was that Ben Chilwell shot in the second half, I believe. But when you look at the quality of the chance, it wasn't that great. And I think for the most part, it was just because it was Thomas Tuchel's second day in charge. I don't think it was much other than that because when you look at how they played, they played with the back three with Callum Hudson-Odoi as a wing-back. And that's something I think most people were quite surprised with going into the game. And when you see how Chelsea have set up under Frank Lampard, it's almost always been a back four. And then when you immediately switch to the back three, I think that's going to come with some sort of adverse effect where it is going to take some adaptation to properly get what you want from that system. Whether Thomas Tuchel carries on with that system, I'm not sure. But I think it was quite a tame day for what was his second day in charge after one training session. And I don't think too much could be read into that just because of the circumstances in which he's been brought into the job. I mean, Frank Lampard was only sacked on Monday. So so mm. there, there is that as well. Yeah, do you find, yeah, it, I, it was interesting that he, he talked afterwards, uh, he talked up afterwards, oh, we had 16 recoveries in the final third. You know, that's proof of energy on the pitch. Big deal. What do you feel about that back three, Johnny? Will that almost emphasise the leadership role that Thiago might have, obviously, you know, given his experience at PSG with Tuchel? Yeah, I mean, he's he is going to be a big player in this rebuild for Chelsea. I thought he, was, he he'd emerged as a as a very significant player under Lampard anyway. He's really impressed me, proved me wrong. I mean, I thought he was just not going to have the legs to play in the Premier League and... and I think he's proved he's got so much upstairs that the legs don't really matter. But I mean, I mean, the, I think the back three was maybe a symptom of trying to protect that lack of pace for Thiago and allow him to, you know, dominate from the back in terms of his positioning and, and bringing the ball out. I also think it was it was just an experienced coach going back to basics. The one big problem, big criticism of Frank Lampard's reign was was the lack of defensive structure and. It was prioritising that. It was it was making sure that Chelsea couldn't get penetrated, and and they did look very very solid. I mean, yes, tame, yes, cagey, but looked very very solid. So I guess that's the the starting point, and that's why he's going to go on about ball recoveries and you know stats and so on. I mean, at some point they're going to have to go and try and score a few goals, but I think as a, as a, a first day at the office, it was just about basics protection and you know not not being embarrassed I suppose Was it significant you think Art that the urgency was provided mainly by Pulisic and Mount? I think so and with 
Mount in particular not starting, of course, there was the reaction was quite strong <laughs> from mm. Chelsea fans, especially on social media. But I think that was just about managing Mount himself because when you look at especially the the last few chapters of the Frank Lampard era, Mason Mount was a key player in that and was dominant in so many games in those closing weeks. And I don't think, especially in the current climate, you can just throw out a 22-year-old every three days and expect him to do the same thing in each of those games. I think there is there does come a time where you have to manage his minutes. That being said, he is he and Pulisic were the two players that impressed most in terms of what they actually brought to Chelsea in attack. And I think the team that started against Wolves was just almost a stopgap to to get get a result and then give Tuchel something to build off when he's finally going to form a team that he actually wants to be his primary 11 going for the rest of the season. You mentioned there are the sensitivity of the Chelsea fans. Obviously, that's linked to, you know, the feel-good factor of that academy initiative, if we want to call it that. Do you think it's the end of that now? Personally, I don't. I think those players, although there may be some inconsistencies, they have enough quality at the base level to to be given a chance to prove themselves under Thomas Tuchel and still be in, in the cup competitions and the Premier League. I think they should get those chances in theory. But um, yeah, I think even though they weren't fe- featured heavily, like Reese James didn't start, Mason Mount didn't start, I think they, their time will come to prove themselves. And of course, competition is going to be strong. But under Frank Lampard, he showed he believed in them because of their base level of quality. And I think Thomas Tuchel will do the same. He did well in promoting Pulisic when he was at Dortmund. Of course, it's a different club with different players now, but I think he will give a, give chances when when they come. Yeah, you know, you, you mentioned Frank Lampard there. Uh, Johnny, can we have a bit of a, of a retrospective on, on Frank? Was he hard done by and can he still be successful at the highest level? I think he was very hard done by and... It's interesting seeing the debate, you know, not 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 among football fans generally, because I think you know fans of other clubs always want to just jump in and 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 criticise and and so on. And there's been a, I guess there's been a bit of a backlash because us in the media have, have tended to champion Frank and his cause, and you get a lot of oh, this is just because you know Frank played for England and Frank's you know he's a nice guy. <clears throat> I really don't think that. I, th- I think I think those that have been look watching properly. I've made a proper judgment on on Frank, and you'd have you know you'd look at a guy who arrived at a time that there was a transfer ban, where Chelsea had just lost their their best player in Aiden Hazard, you know, a player that carried their attacking game for for years. Pedro and William were on their way out in terms of age, and there was a rebuild to do. And I, I, one thing that it kind of annoys me, I sort of see it happening with Solskjaer a bit at United. Once young players enter the team, it's just kind of taken for granted that oh well they were there anyway. No, these players have to be developed. Art, art used the you know used, used used the word sort of nurtured, and, and that's exactly right. You know, it wasn't a given that Mason Mount was going to be a Premier League and international player. It wasn't a given that Reese James was going to be a player of that level. 
you know, it wasn't a given that Ben Chilwell would arrive at Chelsea and be able to step up. This took this took a manager that was sympathetic to them, that could see their qualities and develop them properly. And Pulisic, you know, in his first season under Frank before his injury, made great leaps and bounds. So he did incredible work there, I felt. The point when it went wrong was the transfer window in the summer. How many of those signings were Frank's signings? I'm not sure. I think, funnily enough, if Chelsea had still had a transfer ban, they might be in a better position than they are now. They, they went out and did a supermarket sweep, got overexcited, signed too many players at the same time. And they're now, you know, another guy's had to come in and try and figure out how to use them all. I don't necessarily lay that transfer window at Frank's door. I don't think that's the way Chelsea works. I think it was a young coach in, in, in very difficult circumstances. Yes, he never got the hang of defensively structuring the team properly. It got better, but it was never convincing. But, you know, he's 18 months into his first Premier League and Champions League job. I think he could have learned those things. At the best, Chelsea played very exciting attacking football with intensity, had some great days under him. And I think he showed a lot of promise. And I think Frank Lampard will turn out to be a really decent manager. But he'll be a decent manager for someone else, not Chelsea. Mm, because if you look around, Johnny, Havertz is, is struggling. Timo Werner is in the wilderness. It's probably going to take the season to get those two fit and firing, isn't it? Well, that's right. These these are very talented players, but they're also young players. And they're in their first season in, in England. And I think Havertz had COVID. So, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that really set him back. It's, I, I don't lay their problems, I don't lay their issues at, at Frank's door. I just think that's a natural thing. And, and I think Thomas Tuchel will have exactly the same issues. And we were talking about Mason Mount. I mean, one of his issues is how does he get Mount and Havertz in that team together? Because they're both good enough. You know, they're both big, big talents. How does he get hudson Adoy and Pulisic in the team and Ziyech? You know, it's an un, it, 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 he's got lots of choices, but it's an unbalanced squad. And these these problems will face any coach not just not just Frank Lampard. Yeah, football moves on though a million miles an hour. Burnley next for Chelsea. Quick dose of uh, culture shock, I suppose. That win uh, the Burnley had over Villa last night. That was another indication, wasn't it, uh, of just their inherent resilience. I think so. In they showed that as well at Anfield because I don't think many people would have expected them to win there and break that. That record that Liverpool had, I think the last time they lost there was against Crystal Palace in the 16-17 season. But again, going behind twice to Aston Villa, I don't think many teams would be able to fight back and claw three points away from them. And just the the way in which they did it, I think, of course, after Jack Grealish scores, you just expect Villa to, to have that extra bounce about them. And I think the way Dwight McNeil played on the left was, again, exemplary of his performances since being given that first chance by Sean Dyche a few seasons ago and how he's done at Burnley has been a credit to him really and then that that header from Chris Wood as well was something that I think when you look at the past two Burnley victories it's been maybe typical Burnley is the wrong word but Ashley Barnes causing trouble for 90 minutes and then coming up with the winner and then Chris Wood coming up with a, a a late header in off the back post, I think. It's amazing how, are, how we got the power for that, wasn't it? Yeah, it was... Watching it, you... I guess you'd expect him to go to the to the far post rather than the near post, but how he's guided that in, I think it was a great header, and I think 
Chelsea should be very scared <laughs> of Burnley at this point in time. Mm. Do you think that, do you think Chelsea will need to add movement and penetration to their game to break them down? Yeah, because when you look at how Burnley defend, they're very set in what they do. You if you if you go there and you just pile a bunch of crosses into the box, they're going to be more than happy with that. So I think when you look at how Chelsea may set up personally, Mason Mount probably needs to come back into the team. And obviously they've got Hakim Ziyech as well, whether he, he plays in that more central role as he did against Wolves, I'm not sure. But I think he could be another player that helps with that that fluidity in attack just to move the move Tarkovsky and me around. I think they're going to have to create a lot more problems off the ball when they're in possession and maybe they're the players that can do that. All this Johnny leaves... Manchester City is obvious title favourites, doesn't it? I'm assuming they'll be unlikely to give Sheffield United the same leeway that Manchester United offered last night. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think so. I mean, they're, they're, they they look awesome at the moment, Manchester City. And you know, I mean, mentioning Burnley, the only team that really gives Burnley a hiding are Man City, and it is because as Arts talked about moving players around. I mean, that that the, when they're passing positional play when they're on the game, as they are again. Is, is so hard to combat. What Manchester United didn't do was move Sheffield United around. They got set in a very deep block with Jagielka kind of almost playing on the on the line with Aaron Ramsdale. And United just didn't have the ideas to or, or the wit to to get them out of that shape. But I think Manchester City will. They've got so much coming from behind the attacking line. You look at Gundogan's new lease of life and how Foden's playing, what Torres can do when he comes on, Bernardo's having a new lease of life, and this is without Kevin De Bruyne, but, the, but they're, they're looking again like, you know, that, that Guardiola creation, which is just so fluid and, and, and so difficult to, to kind of track and nullify, with the added extra that they're not being counterattacked anymore. I think it'll be a hard, harder day for Chris Wilder and his side, and I think anyone at the moment is going to find it hard playing against City. It's interesting, uh, you know, we talked about Chelsea and the academy system. What stood out for me or who stood out for me last night, you know, with the exception, obviously, of, of Jaggy Elka, who seemed to celebrate his 62nd birthday in pretty good style. <laughs> uh, um, Ethan Ampadu, I've always thought there was a player there and he struggled initially at Sheffield United, but he, I thought he came through really well last night. Yeah, I think when, when you throw a young player into a situation like that, especially after experiencing what he did with Leipzig, I don't think you're going to get a smooth transition. Even though Sheffield United did have a, a very good season last year, you're going to get a very different culture that you enter as a, as a player, as a young player, when you're suddenly looking at a, a relegation team compared to a Champions League team that's fighting for the Bundesliga. And I think... That's probably been seen as well with Rian Brewster, how he's settled, how he struggled, maybe struggled to settle in to the team earlier in the season. But now that Sheffield United maybe got that that bounce that they needed to in the FA Cup a few weeks ago, now you're seeing the confidence return and how they can actually be effective in that team. And I think Chris Wilder, I wouldn't say it's a it's a statement that Sheffield United should be just credited blindly for sticking with him but because of how much of an impact he's had on that team over the past that club I'd say over the past few years but 
seeing what his initial plans for them were coming to fruition, I think you're just going to see them blossom throughout the rest of the season, I believe. Mm. Go back to Pep, if we could, Johnny. You you spoke earlier on of his influence when at Bayern. There was a very good piece by Miguel Delaney in The Independent looking at the whole German system, the pressing, the psychology of stressing players in training, that sort of stuff. What did Pep learn in Germany and what is he bringing from that experience to the Premier League? Well, I think think it was primarily a, a, a different pace of play, a different physical intensity of play. You know, the Bundesliga is kind of like the Premier League light, I suppose, when you watch it. it it's it's got the um it probably doesn't quite have the mad intensity, but it's certainly got a different intensity to La Liga about it. It's got a different, you know, much greater physiques of players and all that kind of stuff. And I think I think Pep came up against pressing teams that played with intensity and physique and streamlined and refined his his game. And also, you know, he had to coach without Messi for the first time uh, in a different culture. And, I mean, the Bayern Munich teams, He, I know they didn't win the Champions League, but the football his Bayern Munich team played at, at certain points was just like, ex- unbelievable. I mean, an amalgam of... You know that that beautiful possession style, but but with real extra pace and intensity. And I think I think that's I think he had to up his game. I think as any coach does when they when they leave their country. I think that's I think that's what he what he did in Germany. But he's, I mean, a sign that he is an absolute all time great coach is how he's refined his game again in England. I don't see Pep Guardiola football as one thing. I, I see it as something that's evolved. And I remember him talking with great amusement when he first arrived in the Premier League about second balls. You know, he never had the concept of second balls before. <laughs> now, now Manchester City are pretty good at second balls. You know, he kind of, I was at Cheltenham at the weekend and he kind of loved the fact that they had um, Tozer sort of booming these enormous long throws into the box. And he spoke afterwards about Rory Delap. So, you know, he's a student of the game and, and, and he, he was actually giving a towel to Tozer so he could put his throws in the box. And you thought... There's a bit of Pep that's enjoying this, you know, the kind of the professor in him is enjoying trying to solve this this problem. I noticed it. I know. Sorry, Johnny. I, I noticed him there. Was he trying to get into his head? I don't think so. I, th- I think he was enjoying it. I think he was enjoying this day at a little ground. And maybe there was a bit of kind of alpha male behaviour saying, "Look, we're not scared of you. Go and have have another throw," type thing. But no, I think he enjoyed it. I think he enjoyed it. I think I think when he talked about Sam Allardyce being a genius, he's not being. You know, it's making me sarcastic. I, th- I think he's 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 come full circle with English football, and he 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 enjoys the the native challenges of of our game, shall we say, and has incorporated them into his own coaching ideas, and has has undergone for someone that was portrayed so much as a kind of ideologue that only did one thing. I mean, he's evolved enormously in his football, and this season. It's, it's almost my favourite Pep Guardiola season because it's a year that, for the first time, he's really, really had to rebuild. I was kind of glad he didn't get Messi because it would have made it too easy for him. He's had to rebuild. It's a different Manchester City team, but it's still got his hallmarks. And if they do go on to win the title, I think it will be his, his best title. Yeah, I suppose when we look at Germany these days, a lot of eyes settle on Julian Nagelsmann. Ah. Oh, where do you see him fitting in if or probably when 
he comes to the Premier League? It's a strange one. I think when you look at how Liverpool have been set up by Klopp with his whole, I guess, for program since joining back in the mid-2010s, I think he would probably be the prime candidate for a successor there with how he's brought up his um, Leipzig team in a similar way, not not identical, but very similar in how they press and how they want to get the ball from front to back. And I think, or from back to front, sorry. Mm. <laughs> and I think that's probably where I'd see him fitting best with in terms of looking at the base of a squad now and how they would fit into his jigsaw. I think that's probably where he'd fit best. But again, with how young he is, I've, I don't think he's going to want to leave Leipzig too soon. I think he's got a lot of time to spend it in this game. And I think at Leipzig, he will have a lot to learn, even though maybe like how Johnny mentioned, it is maybe a, a Premier League light, but he is at a team where he can still try to build as Klopp did with Dortmund in the early 2010s. And I think it may be very idealistic to look at what he can bring to the Premier League, but I wouldn't be too set on just abandoning what he can still do in the Bundesliga. And I think when you look at the Leipzig teams he's had, he's having to rebuild without Timo Werner, for instance, and what he's been able to bring out of players like Yusuf Paulson, for instance, I think I'll be interested to see what he can continue to do in that sort of setup with Leipzig and how he can maybe try to push Bayern in in the next few years, whether he has the patience, whether English teams have the patience to let that process continue, I'm not sure. But um, that's where where I stand on it. And I think wherever he goes, <laughs> especially with his his uh, match day attire in the Champions League, <laughs> it'll be an interesting watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of those suits, you need, he probably put one in a very dark room, didn't he? <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd like to see him wear that suit in a wet Tuesday night at Stoke. <laughs> Would you actually go? That's a you know. To be honest, I hadn't even thought of him going to Liverpool. But actually, when you think of it, maybe a couple more years in the Bundesliga would probably set him up for that. Would you agree with that, Johnny? It would. It'd be a natural. It, it might be the most natural job for him to take. But I think he'll be lured before then, actually, because I just. I just think while it would make sense for him in many ways to to keep building at his age, I just think he's such a he's a special coach. Someone is just going to throw a lot of money and a great job at him because I think he's the future. And I think I think if you whoever gets him is getting the coming man. So whether that is you know I don't know a, a Manchester United post Solskjaer, whether that's in fact Chelsea next time they make a change, which could be in a few months' time. <laughs> whether that's Liverpool thinking right we need a Klopp successor and we're going to plan for it we'll get into him early and we'll, we'll tee him up I don't know but but whoever identifies Nagelsmann and, and can, can, can get his signature next I think is getting the, the future because he's a, he's a special a special coach he's got the the amalgam of, of, of Pep and Guardiola in his ideas in the same way that Tuchel does but he's more of a risk taker to me and a more positive coach and, and probably someone that's in the long term going to win more and there's a charisma and excitement about him that, that is almost sort of reminiscent of a young Mourinho so it's a lot of things he brings together he's a star and I don't think he'll be allowed to to wait too long 
um, as I say, someone will just go and get him. Mm. Do you think when we talk about Jurgen Klopp uh, that he'd be facing his biggest crisis at Liverpool if they lose at Spurs on Thursday night? Yes, considering they're fifth going into the game and I believe Spurs have, Spurs are sixth. If, yeah. if they are to lose that, I think maybe not crisis in terms of he would be, his job would be at risk, but just in terms of personal pride, I think he would be doing a lot of soul searching to to find out a way to get out of that situation and turn things around. When you look at how Liverpool have performed over the festive period and into the new year, it's not been good enough for the standards that he's set over his time in charge. And I think one thing that's really shocked me is that we're a few days away from the transfer deadline and they still haven't lined up a a centre-back to come in. I think looking from the outside anyway, that should have been a priority going into the window, even in the um, closing months of December. I think there should have been somebody identified to to come into that position. Yes, you may say, oh, they have Jordan Henderson and Fabinho, but Jordan Henderson is not a centre-back. And when you lose what he brings in midfield, you can't quite replace that with, although Wijnaldum, Chamberlain and Thiago are good players and Thiago is a great player. You can't replace his intensity in midfield. And when that drops back, you're always going to have a problem, especially when um, the front three are going through a dip in form, which they are at the minute. And I think that should have been a real area that he should have targeted. Liverpool should have targeted as a club going into the January transfer window. And I think they really did miss a trick not going for a backup centre-back, even if it was a short-term loan, just to help steady the ship a little bit in January. And I think they may pay the price for that later in the season, Yeah, as well as now. I do share that surprise, I must admit. But I suppose, Johnny, are we talking here of an unavoidable fact of football life? Are John W. Henry and FSG just another bunch of venture capitalists? You know, the the Glazers, but with better PR? Um, Ha! Uh, that's a bit of a poison chalice that question but (laughs) sorry no 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 look I know where you're coming from and I suppose in a way the answer is yes I mean the thing about the the thing about FSG is that they're not sentimental they're not mushy kind of dreamers they're not benefactors and no one should ever mistake them for that they're very very clever businessmen who are pretty good at running sports teams so that benefits Liverpool but what they're not is a bunch of happy-go-lucky guys who have just come to lavish money somewhere. I mean, if you look at Liverpool's transfer record over over the piece, we rightly celebrate their ingenuity and Michael Edwards and his department's ability to get value from the market. But that also tells you that they're having to get value from the market. In terms of spending, you know, the old net spend, it's not that great. You know, it's not, it's not huge. They, they live within the means, they spend their TV money, but no more. And they've got an issue now. I mean, they, this, they, they, they tried furloughing. Let's not forget as well in the in the summer, they, they looked at taking some of those government loans. So again, that tells you that there's quite hard-headed business going on. They've got a problem now, which is kind of been building for a couple of years. And it goes back to, I think, 2018, when they, they took the decision to make a lot of re-signings and a lot of new contracts for... The, the, the squad so you know the front three all got new contracts Van Dyke's deal was was, was improved 
they've got about you know six or seven real key players big players coming now coming out of contract in two years time that was the right decision football wise to build them success but we're now coming to the end of that cycle and they're looking at this team that's getting starting to push towards its late 20s and 30s all need contract renewals with the exception I think of of, of, of Trent Alexander-Arnold and, and Diogo Jota coming up in the next couple of years so there's going to have to be a rebuild and probably an expensive rebuild and it'll be really interesting to see in this current climate which way FSG go with it I think Michael Edwards might have to work extra hard, put it that way, over the next couple of years. And they should have signed a centre-back. The fact they didn't suggests that, you know, that sort of short-term benefit that they got of winning the league or whatever, you know, in business terms wasn't enough. I think they're looking at this big picture and they're looking at the pennies and, and cents and so on. And again, being very hard-headed about it. But it may mean that this season they um, they miss out on the chance to, to to win something, and it might mean that they've got a bigger problem in the in the long term because they're going to go into they could go into the summer in, in a kind of you know the, going down on the curve, which will leave them and clock motivational issues and 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 a sort of you know philosophical rebuild to do. Mm. What about Leicester? Uh, they, they got a point on Merseyside at Everton last night. They're a club at the cutting edge in so many ways, aren't they? Probably apart from hype. Yeah, I think the way Brendan Rodgers manages, he probably <laughs> he probably is fine with that. He's absolutely fine that there's no hype around his Leicester at the minute. I know there were some comparisons drawn when they went top of the league to Claudio Ranieri's Leicester, and that's obviously going to come with, <laughs> with going top of the league at Leicester. But I think the way they've gone about this season has been exceptional especially with Harvey Barnes's development I think he's done extremely well on that left wing where he's very unpredictable in that he's always looking to drive at a defender but can also change his direction very quickly and also has a, a very strong shot off both feet and then yesterday against Everton he showed that he has the patience in the box as well to look for a teammate and lay the ball for the assist for Yuri Tielemans and he's He's a player who, when you have Jamie Vardy creeping up in years, you're going to need to depend on these other players to really step up and make an impact. And how Brendan Rodgers has a track record of developing these youngsters. You look at Raheem Sterling at, at Liverpool, Kieran Tierney at Celtic. Although he wasn't the person, he wasn't the manager that gave Tierney his debut. He still helped in that development phase and. You've seen that as well at Leicester with Tiemans, with with Barnes and with James Justin as well. And I think how he's managed that young squad. Oh, and of course, James Madison, can't forget him. <laughs> but I think how he's managed that squad to build on the impressive start under him in his first six months. Of course, they had that dip last season after the restart. But I think how they've continued to develop under him, especially... Jamie Vardy as well with how his game has adapted to being a bit less all action but more precise. I think they will deserve every bit of praise they get this season and Brendan Rodgers is a manager I think that should be respected <laughs> a lot more than maybe he is in in the mainstream. Mm. You know Johnny we've spoken about Leicester quite a bit in the past. What do you think their natural ceiling is 
this season? You know, what 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 does success look like for Brendan Rodgers? I mean, look, the top four is success. It's incredible for Leicester. I think getting back in the Champions League has been a sort of quest for them since 2016-17. That'd be incredible. But they should actually be looking at this as, as a season where they've got an outside chance to win the league because it's an unusual season. We know that they are the the team that's poised or placed to capitalise when the big teams aren't sort of fulfilling their potential. I think Man City will win it. And I think now that they're coming through the pack with such class, it is going to be extremely hard for anyone else. But Leicester should be, and I'm sure will be, because they're ambitious. I'm sure they will be thinking, let's just push as hard as we can. You just never know. Because they, they're as capable as anyone, I think, of, of, of profiting if, if Man City don't end up doing it. And I was kind of watching the United game last night, but with Leicester on my laptop. And I could see in the last half an hour, every time I looked at that screen, it was Leicester that were pushing for the winner against Everton. It was Leicester that were in and around the opposition box and Everton were sort of counter-attacking. And that was impressive to me. You know, because people see Everton as a kind of same level as Leicester, but just, you know, on that basis, Leicester looked like the ones with a greater belief and, and, and sort of firepower to, to try and win a game like that. But I echo everything Art said. It's an, it's an extraordinary job that Brendan and those players are doing. Mm. What about Arsenal? Uh, obviously a club that you're associated with. Are they ready for the challenge of Manchester United? And specifically, can we just talk about Mikel Arteta? I want to really explore what you feel his influences as a coach are beyond the obvious link to Pep. And specifically looking at the way he's using Saka on the right, is that a sign of foresight and flexibility or is it just circumstance? Well, with the first point on Manchester United, I think they're going to be as ready as they could be because when you look at the run-in after the new year, it was probably favourable, I'd say, in terms of the sides they were facing, Newcastle, West Brom, for instance, where you would expect them to win. But throughout the course of the season, they haven't been winning those games consistently. So I think running up to this Manchester United game, of course, they play Leicester, Manchester City as well in in February, they needed they needed to win those games, especially the Southampton game in the Premier League. You saw how Mikel Arteta rotated in the FA Cup because I I feel that he he knew that the Premier League game at St Mary's was the big big test going into the Manchester United game, and I feel he and Arsenal came out of that test pretty pretty good. But going into Manchester United again another big test I think what will give him encouragement is as you say he's found I believe a platform that he can build off in terms of an actual system but also a way of thinking that Arsenal can rely upon with going back to the back four but also bringing in uh, Saka on the right wing Smith Rowe into the side as a number 10 and how that's helped Lacazette because I feel when you look at Lacazette as a striker Arteta's always been a big fan of him because of what he can bring aside from goals, the way he can link play. And when you look at the team a few months ago, they didn't really complement his skill set. So there was Willian who was getting a lot of chances, but wasn't really moving off the ball, wasn't giving Lacazette better angles to hit or play off, bounce off in the final third. 
but he gets that with Saka and Smith-Rowe. So I think that's where Mikel Arteta is probably in a position where he can he can really believe that his Arsenal side can go and give Manchester United real problems. In terms of his coaching philosophies, there is the, <laughs> the obvious nods to Pep Guardiola, but I do think that he is a student of the game, really, when you look at how he almost very similar to Pep, he talks about Johan Cruyff's Barcelona quite a lot because he was brought up in that, in La Masia. And where I probably see differences, however, to Pep is that he may be more willing to try the less conventional route of going to a back three, for instance, when he knew he needed results, Where whereas I don't think Pep Guardiola's experimented with a back three as often as Arteta has, in, even though Arteta's only been in the job for 13 months, for instance. And I think where Arteta's also had the experience of playing under English English clubs and Rangers as well, he's probably got a better understanding of the English game at a base level when he's coming to management. And you see that with how, aside from wanting to press very high up the pitch, he's going to have players who understand the value of those second balls that Pep maybe took a while to understand when I was speaking to, I spoke to him after the Southampton game and it was very evident that he wanted Arsenal to press very high because uh, Rob Holden and David Luiz, for instance, were instructing their teammates to get high up the pitch and they were almost had all 10 outfield players in the Southampton half at points in the game. But there were also points where in the second half they had to defend very deep. And when I asked him about that, he said, yes, they're going to have to do that. And it becomes a game where the centre-backs, well, not just the centre-backs, but the players are going to have to defend their zone and defend their zone aggressively. And I think that's something that probably he's not caught on to, but he's realised an earlier stage in his coaching career than Pep Guardiola because of the education that he had in England and Scotland as a player. Yeah, I remember you saying when you were last on, uh, you were talking about the, the long ball from Leno causing some problems. That theory looks pretty good now, doesn't it? Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, just a bit. Yeah. What what about the window itself, Johnny, for Arsenal? They've got Ozil, Socrates, Kolasinac, Mustafi out of the building. Odegaard is coming in from Real Madrid, probably needs time. But probably out of all the Premier League teams, they probably had the best window, haven't they? I would agree. I I think that the art of getting players out is always overlooked. I think it's as important sometimes as getting players in. And this is, you know, think where Arteta was only two months ago with all the questions swirling around him and Ozil kind of, you know, waiting in the waiting in the wings, haunting him. You know, fast forward now, he's he's in a much better position in the league. We can see the direction of travel and he's managed to move the squad on and he's got those players out. That will help him enormously. Just every day in tr- on the training pitch, you know, he's got the group he wants now, or it's more like the group he wants. That helps identity, that helps unity, that helps everything. And Arsenal emotionally can move on from, you know, in the case of Ozil, I wouldn't put the others in, in the class of being iconic in any way, but, in the, in, you know, Ozil was a great player for them. Well, maybe... 
okay, without getting into the whole debate, what is a great player? But, you know, for at, at that time, he could have been a great player for them. He's not an Arsenal great, but he gave Arsenal great moments. And it might be one of the last players they've had that's that, that's done that until I think this new generation will create great moments for them. But it's a, it's been a great window for them. And, and a, a number of clubs are struggling. You know, look at United. Marcus Rocco's still hanging about. I, I still see, I still see <laughs> sort of um, stories about you know which which Mexican club have looked into signing him and then realised he gets paid 160 grand a week and run away. You know, so it's 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 a, it's an art getting rid of these players, and Arsenal have managed to do it. And 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 Odegaard's exciting for everyone. Will fit into what they're doing, and it's uh, it, it, it's 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 convincing stuff when you know, the recruitment side joins up with uh, what's happening on the pitch. And that's what I've seen in the last month from Arsenal. Mm. With United, uh, you know, if you're going to say, well, OK, a long unbeaten run is going to come to an end, you wouldn't have suggested that that would have been against Sheffield United, obviously. People have looked at United and said, without being disparaging, look, they're not title material. I suppose when you look at their home form, they've lost four of their 10 home games in the league that's where they're going to they're letting themselves down isn't it yeah and I think when you look at how teams across the league are playing I think Manchester United are one of the biggest teams that may suffer from having no fans in the ground because when you see how those Manchester United fans react it when they're in the stadiums I think they are probably one alongside Liverpool and Sheffield United as well they're they are teams where they get a real bounce from the crowd. And I think when you take that away, you're you're going to get that little bit of delay in decision-making or even just a lack of intensity. And I think when you look at how they conceded the um, second goal, for instance, that's where I feel concentration comes into play. And that's where I think where you see what the lack of a real intensity around them can do because normally you would expect especially at Manchester United um, a player to pick up Oli Burke in that position but when you you are lacking that that real drive and that intensity in your play I don't think those are the little things that can go unnoticed and in the end you pay for them but when you go away from home you've then got that drive of being the away team that doesn't have the pressure of having to really impose yourselves on the game but you can surprise the home team by doing that yourself and that's where I feel they've probably benefited most I think the Leicester City game is a good example of that where Leicester was surprisingly on the day not not as great as they they have been over the course of the season but Manchester United came into that game looking like they were ready to take all three points and and were able to get over the line although they did have that little hiccup with Harvey Barnes' goal. Marcus Rashford on the day looked very sharp and then bringing on Cavani towards the end of the game to link up with Bruno Fernandes. I think they that's where you get that real spark and going into the weekend, that's probably where Mikel Arteta has his big fears. Yeah, you talk, Donny, about getting players out of the building and how difficult that is. just want to pause for a second and just... Well, on the example of Odeon Igalo, who's leaving Manchester United at the end of his loan spell, I really liked his spell at Old Trafford simply because he reminded us 
that footballers can be fans as well. Do you get what I'm saying there? I do. I I thought it was... Um, I, it's, it, can things be heartwarming in football these days? I mean, it, it, there was something... That came quite close, it didn't did. it? It did. I mean, there was something kind of wide-eyed and joyful about him in terms of, of the signing and, and every time he got on the pitch. He didn't get a lot of game time and he didn't complain about it, but he had a couple of... He's had a couple of cameos that were important to United and there was a sense, you know, he gave up plenty of money in, 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 in China to, to take that spell and fulfilled something he'd always wanted to do. It's, it is, isn't it? I mean, this, this, that's why there's nothing like, you know, I, I suppose when you see a, a team that's got fans of the club on the pitch, there's something special about that. The class of 92, Trent Alexander-Arnold playing for Liverpool, uh, Phil Foden in a Manchester City shirt, some of the young lads at Chelsea. There's something special about that. Mark Noble for West Ham. It brings a bit of extra and, and it allows you as a, as a spectator just for a moment to almost imagine yourself doing what they're doing because we all want to play for, well, I'm sure even you want to play for Millwall, Mike. But uh, uh, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd, I would have, I'd have given up a, a year or two of the career for an Aberdeen appearance. <laughs> the mind boggles. What about what about uh, you know someone that you know well, Johnny David Moyes? West Ham have got Liverpool at home on uh, Sunday. Six wins on the bounce. He has been responsible for a terrific achievement at a naturally unstable club, hasn't he? Yeah, I think he's achieved in spite of his surroundings in in many ways. I mean, he's got a good group of players and he's been able to harness that, or rather he's been able to refine that squad and find a good group of players amid what was a bit of a mess of a squad that he inherited. But he's he's certainly got good types that he's drawn on. Like, you know, like, I mean, Martin, I mentioned Martin Noble. He hasn't played all the time, but he's been really important off the pitch. Declan Rice, Suchek's a great character, Ogbonna. Antonio, you know he's he's harnessed that, but it's I'm I'm so pleased for him because his feat at Everton is forgotten now, forgotten because of what happened to him at Manchester United, and sometimes you have to look at it again and and just shake your head, you know, uh, getting Everton to finish in the top six or seven for what eight nine years out of 11 to to get into the champions league or, or qualification to finish above liverpool consistently in his last few seasons to 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 you know produce the players he did on on the budget it's fantastic and and after a few years i think he's 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 found a place that he can do that again and it's all the hallmarks of everton you look at west ham my first thought is you would be horrible to play against you know the physical the Every single player's at it. They're aggressive off the ball. Uh, they're positive on the ball. You've got someone like Suchek steaming into the box to try and you know pick up the the the, the knockdowns and second balls. And he himself, David, is you can see the glint in his eyes back in his post-match interviews. Everything is about not resting on laurels, but we can do more. We can achieve more. And the you know that the, he's chasing the Champions League place again. That's kind of magic, isn't it? Given where he, given where West Ham were and where he was when he arrived. Yeah, while we're talking about Everton, Art, another expensive error from Jordan Pickford last night. Carlo Ancelotti says he's not even going to talk to him about it. He's still got his faith, uh, but can they afford to do so? And you know, we, when we look at Burnley and, and Nick Pope playing so well, frankly, I can't get my head around the fact that that Jordan Pickford is still 
one assumes, Gareth Southgate's number one. Yeah, I think that's a very valid, <laughs> valid question to Mr. Southgate because when you look at how the English goalkeepers are performing consistently in the Premier League, Nick Pope is miles, miles ahead of Jordan Pickford. And I think when, okay, maybe you sacrifice a little bit of what can be happen, what can happen with the ball at their feet when you go for Nick Pope. But I think when it comes down to it, you're going to have to rely upon their hands more than their feet. So that's where the decision has to be made to to bring in Nick Pope. But with Carlo Ancelotti, I think he's probably got no other choice than to, to keep faith in Jordan Pickford until the summer, at least. We look at Arsenal, who were having goalkeeper issues of their own, and they went in and signed Matt, Matt Ryan on a, a loan deal to the end of the season. But I'm not sure Everton maybe planned to do the same. So maybe that their their case for that comes in the summer. But also I just wanted to mention quickly after the David Moyes chat from Johnny that in terms of Mikel Arteta as well, I remember um, last season, the first game before lockdown and everything, Arsenal played West Ham. And that was obviously Arteta's first meeting with David Moyes as managers. And before the game, he spoke about how... I think it was a maybe an ACL injury he suffered at Everton where he had his first real thoughts of becoming a manager. And that's where David Moyes, I think, encouraged him to to go on that path. So there was also that influence there from big David Moyes, which I forgot I've I maybe forgot to bring up at the time. But I saw I saw Johnny smiling at the time when I was talking about it as well. So uh, I thought I'd just bring that up before the I Moyes dynasty, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I suppose it actually sort of brings it round to a natural conclusion. You know, as a thought for the day, let's look at management. I thought it was summed up by Pep Guardiola when he was asked to respond to Frank Lampard's sacking. And he said, people talk about projects and ideas. They don't exist. You have to win or you'll be replaced. In that context, each of you, I just want to ask a question relating to one particular manager and their job security. Steve Bruce, Johnny, 11 without a win. They're playing Everton on Saturday. Is he in as much bother as it seems? Probably not, actually, because um, if there's one club that winning isn't doesn't seem to be that important to the ownership, it's Newcastle, isn't it? What, what's important is the, the cash register going ching-ching when the, the Premier League coin drops into it. So... Steve Bruce's position only becomes endangered when Newcastle's are in danger of falling out of the Premier League, which, by the way, will I think they'll get to that point in the next few weeks because they've gone such a bad downward slope. I think right now he's probably safe. Yeah, well, the minute Mr Ashley thinks that that, that cheque might not be arriving, then he will um, give Joe Kinnear a phone or, or whatever. <laughs> Joe Kinnear. <laughs> OK. All our yesterdays, thank you. What about Sam Allardyce? Uh, obviously he's not going to get sacked, but West Brom heading for the worst defensive record in 50 years. They've got an absolutely critical game on Saturday against Fulham. What do you think about the initiative of bringing him back? Is he a man past his sell-by date or a manager past his sell-by date? I'd say potentially when you look at how the league has changed in the short time he's been out of it, he, he and West Brom may have fought it would it was a match that could, they could build off, but I don't think that, especially with how the Premier League has been misshapen by the 
pandemic, I don't think he was prepared for that. It looks like it was always going to be a, sh- a short-term arrangement. And I, I'm, I'm guessing that'll be the same, especially if they do end up get, getting relegated. But yeah, I, I, I don't think he has the tools to manage in, in a pandemic Premier League at, at the present time. Maybe if it was if this was all happening 10 years ago, but uh, I'm not sure about right now. Yeah, time moves on. I suppose if football is the modern equivalent of bread and circuses, maybe there is something to be said for comparing managers to gladiators. After all, they're fated and they're fawned over until they fail. Then, more often than not, it's a thumbs down. There's always someone else to take their place. Management is changing. It's increasingly short-term and invariably brutal. A manager these days is for one Christmas, maybe two, but not for life. Will Thomas Tuchel have a banner hung in his honour at Stamford Bridge? Somehow, I doubt it. You agree? Let me know. In the meantime, thanks to R and Johnny, and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.